News Talk 1110-993-WBT, The Pete Callender Show. I'm The Pete, and uh, this is the show. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. You can email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pete Callender. And uh, remember to get the podcast. It is free, right to your smartphone or tablet, and then you just take me wherever it's, uh, you know, you listen to me, pause it, rewind it, speed up my voice, make me sound like a chipmunk. You got lots of options available to you on the podcast front. WBT.com. Just go there and uh, follow the podcast. All right. So related to the gaslighting event that occurred at the University of Chicago under the the name of the moniker of uh, the Disinformation and the Erosion of Democracy Summit, where people like Brian Stelter and Ann Applebaum from The Atlantic get up there and gaslight people and deny any kind of culpability, in Stelter's case, for the disinformation campaigns he and his network promulgated for five years. And Applebaum says that it's just not relevant, Hunter Biden's laptop. Yeah, I I think we're going to see, I think we're going to see some relevance. I think we're going to actually all become very aware of what was on that laptop soon. Just a prediction. I have no idea if it bears uh, out, but we shall see. Which is why when I came across this story, I kind of got a little suspicious. And maybe, look, maybe this is just the contrarian in me. Maybe this is why I was attracted to do this work in the first place. You know, as a reporter for years and as a host now. Or maybe, I don't know, or, or you know, maybe the job taught me to be more suspicious like this. I don't know. I'm a little bit skeptical, though. And I'm talking about the PRESS Act, the P-R-E-S-S Act. It stands for Protect Reporters from Exploitative State Spying Act. Okay? How, this is a, a House resolution up in Congress, House Resolution 4330, the Protect Reporters from Exploitative State Spying Act. It was introduced by Representatives Jamie Raskin, John Yarmouth, and Ted Lieu. Now I'm really suspicious, because if those, (laughs) well, Raskin and Lieu, if those two guys are involved in it, I am automatically radar going crazy over this. So here is the way that allaccess.com, which is an industry publication in the radio biz, allaccess.com, this is how they described it. A bill to shield journalists from being forced to reveal their confidential sources, and protect them from federal law enforcement subpoenas. And this bill, this it passed out of committee, and it was unanimous coming out of the House Judiciary Committee. So all the Republicans voted uh, for it as well. It now goes to the full House for a vote. They say the bill would protect journalists from federal demands that they reveal their sources, except in specific cases like threats to national security. So that's the way it's being built. Okay, so you got two, as I understand it, two components. One is that it shields you from having to be uh, forced into you know, providing the sources, but also the issuing of subpoenas and the collecting of information from third-party sources. The uh, National Association of Broadcasters, industry organization, the NAB, they came out. They said they applaud the uh, uh, the bipartisan passage of the Press Act, 
legislation that will protect journalists' right to legally, openly, and fearlessly report the news, embracing the right of a free press to report on news without fear or favor. Journalists rely on confidential sources to shine a light on wrongdoing in government, expose waste of taxpayer dollars, and hold our elected officials accountable. Now, we already have a Whistleblowers Protection Act. We already have that as a law. Whistleblowers in government already have protection. So what would this be about? So is this, this is for the reporter. So the reporter can't be thrown in jail, cited for contempt, for refusing to divulge their source, right? I fully acknowledge I am also a contrarian on this. I take the opposite view as virtually everybody in media and journalism. That I am not a fan of shield laws. I'm just not. I don't think reporters and journalists should enjoy special privileges simply because they're employed by certain outlets versus others. Because that's that that's what we are looking at. That's what we see being created here. Shield laws and states have shield laws to varying you know degrees and such. But here's the problem: what is a journalist? And we actually, I went through and I found out that in forty three thirty House Resolution forty three thirty, they define what is a journalist, and this is critical because the definition of a journalist is going to determine. Who enjoys these special privileges, these protections? For example, what if I have a Substack newsletter? Am I a journalist? What if I have a Patreon account or a Locals account or um, I just write a blog? What if I just do that? Am I a journalist? Here's the definition of a covered journalist. A covered journalist. I mean, at least until some lawyers in robes completely, you know, bastardize the English language to turn these terms into something else. But for now, this is what the language says. Quote, the term covered journalist means a person who regularly gathers, prepares, collects, photographs, records, writes, edits, reports, or publishes news or information that concerns local, national, or international events or other matters of public interest for dissemination to the public. So. My mayo and ketchup comparison, not probably likely covered under journalism, I'm assuming, right? I guess it could be information, but not really concerning local, national, or international events. So again, a covered journalist means a person who regularly gathers, prepares, collects, photographs, records, writes, edits, reports, or publishes news or information that concerns local, national, or international events, or other matters of public interest for dissemination to the public. Do you see, did you catch the word in there? Did you catch the lawyer word, the weasel word that's in there? And I'm not saying this is intentional, because actually Congressman Andy Biggs is the one that got this language inserted into the bill to define journalists and journalism. My concern is lawyers with robes that are going to reinterpret one of these words. That word? Regularly. Regularly. What's regular? So if I'm doing once a week podcasts or once a week substacks, is that regular? Well, once a month. What if it's intermittent? 
what if I blog and I just kind of write when the, you know, when it, when it moves me? And sometimes it'll be six months and sometimes it'll be six hours. Is that regularly? What if I get the Pentagon Papers equivalent and I just want to publish, I want to set up a website and I want to do this and this is it. I'm just going to take all of the Hunter Biden laptop information, let's say, and just put it all up on a website for people to look at. Is that regularly? Am I a journalist? Am I covered? News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Congressman Jim Jordan, ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, spoke in favor of this press act, which again is the uh, Protect Reporters from Exploitative State Spying Act. Jim Jordan, uh, he said that uh, his colleague, his Republican colleague, Andy Biggs, had gotten the language to define journalist and journalism into the bill. And the definition of a covered journalist means a person who regularly gathers and reports news and they uh, define all of that. My concern is that word regularly. Carolina Bulldog got it exactly right on Twitter. Regularly. That That is an opening that a lawyer can exploit to mean... Anything they wanted to me, right? And I was listening earlier today, Vince Coakley, he was talking about a story uh, that I had not uh, seen that somebody has gotten a hold of all of the 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 Hunter Biden emails and they're going to start publishing them. They're going to start putting them up on a website. So does that mean, if I just put all, like, let's say I've got Hunter Biden's laptop. First of all, ew. Second of all, I'm putting it all on a website. It's going to call, I'm going to call it, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop.com or something. I'm going to put it all up there and everybody can see it, search it, do whatever you want with it. So it's one dump. That's it. Sort of like WikiLeaks. They put everything up at once. Have at it. Is that reporting? Are you a covered journalist? If you do one website with a ton of information, but it all goes up at one time. Is that, are you now a covered journalist? Let's look at the definition for journalism. The term journalism means Gathering, preparing, collecting, photographing, recording, writing, editing, reporting, or publishing news or information that concerns local, national, or international events or other materials of public interest for dissemination to the public. Word regularly is not in there, which means you can be engaged in journalism but not be a journalist, a covered journalist, I should say. This makes me concerned, but we'll see how it plays out. If there's one thing I know, it's that when, you know, people write legislation, there are never any unintended consequences. Actually, the first version of the bill was introduced as the uh, at this uh, House Judiciary Committee by Vice President, former Vice President uh, Mike Pence, when he was a member of the committee. So Pence did this. He tried to advance uh, this kind of legislation. And Jim Jordan said... Quote, administrations have been guilty of unjustly targeting journalists, but none in recent years more so than the Obama administration, whose control on the flow of information has been described as, quote, the most aggressive since the Nixon administration. And the current administration is proving itself to be much better or isn't proving itself to be much better. In fact, just last month, we learned that the Biden Justice Department targeted Project Veritas, a news organization specializing in undercover journalism. 
Project Veritas was subjected to an extensive investigation by the FBI, including having its emails seized on Microsoft servers. In a free country, we need to make sure that the government cannot unmask journalist sources without good cause. This bill provides those protections, and it's time we get this legislation signed into law. All right. So that's the that's one side of the story. There's another angle here, though. And the other angle is, as I mentioned, we already have whistleblower protections. And why I tend not to like the shield laws is, first off, I don't find them to be necessary because if I'm a reporter, when I was a reporter, and people would give me information, I would then have to decide if they're asking for anonymity, you always have to make this call. How far do you go to protect the an- the anonymity? And if you're not willing to go to jail for the for the information, for that source, then you should not tell that source that you will go to jail to protect them. For, that's the first thing. If you're not willing to go to jail to protect their anonymity, then uh, then you should tell them that right up front. Because that might change their decision as to whether or not they use you to get their message out, right? First off. Second of all, if I were to ever be threatened with contempt for protecting my source, then I would go to jail to protect that source. And I would then benefit. My reputation as a protector of sources would grow. And then people would come to me with more stories. And then I would be able to report even bigger stories. My reputation is improved if you hold me in contempt. And this has always been the problem for the courts dealing with reporters. Because reporters take it as a badge of honor. Reporters tend to be contrarian in uh, in those types of situations. They are usually not interested in, in divulging their sources. So if I'm the reporter, I find very little to gain uh, to be gained here from these types of laws. Again, I recognize I am in the minority on this. I also don't like the fact that it seems to elevate me as a reporter above just a regular citizen who's not a reporter. Because I'm not above just a regular citizen. I, too, am just a regular citizen. I just happen to work in this field doing this thing. Yes, it has a constitutional protection, but I don't get any special rights just because I happen to be employed by a certain company versus working for myself, right? I don't find that to be very fair. So I don't like the di- the different treatment aspect of it. So after all of that is now laid out, who are we actually going to be protecting? How about somebody who wants to spread disinformation. Are they going to get extra protection here? Why, yes, they do. See, they get the protection, the cloak of protection that was drawn for the reporter, but that transfers to them. They get that protection as well. So now I can plant as many stories as I want in out in media outlets, have them all lies and you know hoaxes and everything else, and now I'm protected as long as the reporter doesn't get mad and burn me, which to this day, I've never seen a reporter get mad at any of these liars that planted hoaxes through them. So that tells me they seem to be OK with the plants. That's my conclusion. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. There is a connection I'm going to weave together here. Because I am a professional, um, I'm going to weave this together here with a story out of uh, 
or by uh, uh, some analysis by Rui Tejera. 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 is how he pronounces that. Saying Democrats have a Nevada problem. I'll get to that in a minute. First, let me jump over here and I'll get Stan on. Hello, Stan. Welcome to the show. What's up? How are you doing, Pete? Hey, I'm good. Happy Friday. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk with you about the thing you said about the unintended consequences of legislation. Yeah, there's never any unintended consequences for the legislation. Well, no, I'll beg the difference. All legislation, what happens is always intended consequence. The, what they use is they tell you what they want to do with it to sell it to you. And but when they get to the end, the unintended consequences, once you call them on it, they never do fix it. So I'm going to give you a, an example of what I'm talking about. Student loans, they sold that to us as it was going to help people who could not afford to go to college, go to college. So we bought into it. About the same amount of people are going to college now and graduating that we're going to before you did that. Only now, the people that come out of college have an extra mortgage payment and can't qualify for a house. Secondly, it was when they do finally bail them out, it'll be tantamount to having used taxpayer funds to fund big academia. And that was always the goal. I don't know. I, I, I think you're reverse engineering that. I mean, the idea of taking out loans to go to college has been around for a very long time. And you're yeah, tell- but, but, what, but what happened is, is when the government guarantees the credit and the people don't do it on their own, the co-signers always end up paying. Sure. Well, so I mean, okay, so, Stan, what you're describing is, Stan, what you're describing, though, is the axiom that the natural tendency of government is to take liberty from the people and the natural tendency of the people is to yield liberty to the government. That's it, it has always been the case. It's, and that's the hallmark of all government uh, programs, services, laws, all of it. Absolutely. I think what you're doing, though, is you're you're reverse engineering. You're saying because government grew in this way, that that was the intentional way by design at the very beginning by the people who initially ran those bills. And I I, I don't know. I think that's too expansive. I think that's I think that's it's way too uh, sweeping of a statement to be uh, more so true than not. No, I mean, I mean, are there some instances where some of the legislation is put out? Absolutely sure. But in a lot of the big legislations where we complain about unintended consequences yeah. and they never fix it, then if they didn't fix it, that has to be the intended consequence. Well, I don't know if it's the intended consequence, but they're they're satisfied with the way it's operating. Because once, like, for, for example, a lot of the licensure stuff that occurs, right, acts as a way to, to stiff arm new entry into the marketplace, new competition, right, small startups that disrupt industry and that sort of thing. So I think once, like, if you start off with this uh, idea of, hey, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, I don't know, like, uh, like doctors aren't uh, practicing quackery and killing people, so let's have some licensing. And then, of course, you realize the benefit of, hey, we get to stiff arm competitors and keep them out of the marketplace, and then you can start building on that, and you're happy with the way it, it, it turned out, and you're able to navigate the new system. I don't know if the fact that you are happy with the way it turned out indicates that that's the way you wanted it to turn out and that you had a preconceived idea of how that was going to occur. I don't know if that proves – it doesn't necessarily prove the initial premise. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I understand. Like, you're, that's why I said you're reverse engineering it because, yes, like, oh, look at this. Hey, we're now more powerful. Didn't see that coming, right? And that may be yeah, the case in some cases. But in other cases, I think you are right. I think in some cases they do look towards – uh, you know, making an outcome uh, on the front end and then trying to induce that outcome. I do think that that occurs on occasion. I just don't think it can be in every instance. 
Thank you, Pete. Love your show. Yeah, all right, buddy. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend, Stan. That's a good. It, it's a fair point. I just always try to guard against, and there's my contrarianism again. <laughs> I always try to guard against the the you know the the sweeping nature of saying oh, because what happens is if you if you when you start saying these things to yourself that this always happens. I was I I say I almost did it right there. I try to guard against the sweeping always ideas. Because if you start getting in the habit of saying always always you then start cramming different issues and ideas under the various theories. So the thing about and I'm not saying Stan was engaged in a conspiracy theory, although I guess maybe kind of it sort of is in the same family. But people who engage and believe in conspiracy theories end up believing in a lot of them. So there's we we went over this a couple of weeks back. New research and uh into, you know, people who uh who believe in conspiracy theories tend to adopt a lot of them. And I try to guard against that sort of drift in my own mind, because you can see how that can happen where once you start doubting this thing, then you have to start doubting this other thing and doubting that other thing. And it kind of takes you down the path. And then you end up with, you know, QAnon or blue and on, you know, Smearing a Supreme Court nominee as a gang rapist, that kind of stuff. Um, and so when you say, well, every single bill that's ever been created, that's of the same, I, I kind of, that sounds like it's of the same genre, you know? So that's what I, that's why I try to push back on that and stiff arm that a little bit and say, okay, that's hashtag not all legislation. Because some pieces of legislation don't have really, unintended consequences, but I get what Stan was, was getting at. I do. I understand what he was driving at, that, that these, that, that at some point you have to wonder, were they intended if they don't get fixed? If the unintended consequences are bad and everyone says they're bad, then why don't you fix them? Right. I get that. Um, all right. So there's a connection here to this story about Democrats having a Nevada problem. There's a guy named Rui Tejera. He's the author of a book back in 2002 called The Emerging Democratic Majority. Does this sound familiar? He's the guy who said that the uh, migration waves coming from Central and South America are going to turn the Democratic Party more Hispanic and uh, the growing number of immigrants in America is going to mean that Democrats have a permanent, lasting, durable majority forever because they're all going to be Democrats that come from Central and South America. This was demographics' destiny. This was his argument, right? And Democrats were very enthusiastic about all of this. I mean, remember, it was 2002. They, they just lost to George W. Bush, who was just the stupidest and most corrupt, evil genius moron ever. Until Trump, of course. Um, well, then McCain, and then Romney, and then Palin, but then, then Trump, right? Anyway... So 2002, they were a very low spot, and they said, hey, this is it. But th this marked the turning point. This is when Democrat activists started becoming way more open borders adjacent, shall we say. Um, he's got a new book out called The Optimistic Leftist. Okay. But he says, Democrats have a problem in Nevada. <music> News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Rui Teixeira says Democrats have a Nevada problem. This is the demographics is destiny guy. 
Democrats' ability to hang on to control of the Senate rests in part on their ability to hold a seat in Nevada. That seat is currently held by Catherine Cortez Masto. She won the seat. This was the seat Harry Reid had. Um, But it was a close race. She won this in 2016. She won it by about 25,000 votes. Today, Rui Tejera points out that holding on to that seat might not be as easy as Democrats hope. There are signs the party is struggling with both Hispanic and working class voters in the state, not to mention President Biden's low approval rating. Nevada, despite its rapid diversification of the electorate, Nevada went from a state that was more Democrat than the nation as a whole to a state that is now more Republican than the nation as a whole. It went So it used to be three-tenths of a percentage point more Democrat, and it is now two full points more Republican. According to unpublished data from States of Change, the Democratic margin among Hispanics contracted by eight points between 2016 and 2020. Catalyst data shows an even larger decline of 17 points. So she's got to overcome the president's sagging approval ratings, dissatisfaction with the economy, and her own relative anonymity. So the question I have now is, when do the knives come out for Biden? When does that happen? Because his numbers at some point start dragging other candidates down. And those other candidates are not going to be too happy if they get tossed because of the economy, because of inflation, because of crime, and because of a scandal involving Hunter Biden and his laptop and the connection with the corrupt Biden family storyline. So when do the it's because at some point they do. At some point you hit critical mass, right? All the stories, this is the, you know, slowly at first and then very quickly. That's how these things happen. They build and build and build and then boom. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is just explosion out of nowhere. Well, no, you had pressure building before. John Sexton at hotair.com, he says, in keeping with the centrist, almost center-right approach that Senator Masto is, uh, is trying to portray, she's joining now other vulnerable Democrats, including Senators Mark Kelly, Kirsten Sinema, and Raphael Warnock, in opposing the Biden administration's plan to end Title 42 removals, warning that doing so is going to lead to another surge at the border. She told Politico, quote, this is the wrong way to do it, and it'll leave the, uh, the administration unprepared for a surge at the border. We should be working to fix our immigration system by investing in border security and treating immigrant families with dignity. Instead, the administration is acting without a detailed plan. Then they quote um, Politico quotes Chuck Rocha, a longtime Democratic consultant who says it's not the policy that these Democrats are scared of. It's the ads. It's the advertisements. They're terrified that Republicans are going to spend money saying they're for open borders. Uh, yes, well, of course they will. <laughs> Why would they not? Of course you should run those ads. And Democrats need to feel the pain of those ads, and they already are worried about them. Not that they oppose the policy. They're afraid of the ads. So they didn't count on Hispanic voters becoming less Democrat, Right. The longer they uh, stayed in America, 
which I was saying this for years that we want like the people who are making these decisions to to come here, not the cartel people, not the human smugglers and the drug dealers and cartels, but the people who are trying to get here for a better life. That is a rational decision. When you see a country that offers you freedom to succeed in a better life for your kids and they're not enforcing their laws. That's a rational decision. Wait, if I show up here, you're going to give me all of this stuff and I'm not going to have to go home. And if I just wait long enough, I'm going to get amnesty. That's a rational decision. So they didn't count on people making those rational decisions, not rewarding Democrats in perpetuity for having the open borders. Now, let me uh, let me jump back real quick here. This just posted. So the kids that asked the questions of the of Stelter and Applebaum, apparently they're part of a group called uh, Chicago Thinker. The Chicago Thinker, it is a, a publication and it's conservative and libertarian leaning. And get this. The Atlantic's editor-in-chief called the Chicago Thinkers reporting a disinformation campaign. Listen to this. I think one darkly humorous but inevitable uh, measurement of our success is that um, our disinformation conference has been the subject of disinformation campaigns on social media already. Uh, So, yeah. It's not a disinformation campaign. Chicago Thinker writing on Twitter, and just like that, Jeffrey Goldberg proved our point. First rule in the corporate media playbook, dismiss truthful reporting as disinformation in order to avoid accountability. It's a fitting end to the conference. It really is amazing. Our friend David Harsani from National Review, he said it's a good example of how the word disinformation can be abused to dismiss criticism and debate. All right. Thanks so much for listening and hanging out. I appreciate it. Brett Winterbull is coming up next on News Talk 1110-993-WBT. If you're going to be at the event tomorrow night, hope to see you there. If not, we'll see you Monday. Don't break anything while I'm gone.